0: Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway, connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance.
1: Hello, Economic Rockstars. Today, I have a fantastic guest, Professor Dermot Hayes from Iowa State University. He's an agricultural economist and originally hails from Ireland and the town that I'm actually from, County Wexford. In this episode, we speak about a number of topics, mainly comparative advantage, trade, feeding the growing Chinese population, and their movement away from staple foods, the Malthusian catastrophe, and beta agonists in your food. If you like this episode, why not check out previous episodes featured on the Economic Rockstar podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and never miss an episode, and check out the website economicrockstar.com. Each week, I ask the featured guest of Economic Rockstar their favorite book. And why not get one of these books for free? Yes, I said for free on audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar. And for being an Economic Rockstar listener, you will be treated to a free audiobook. So enjoy this episode and why not check out my Facebook page Economic Rockstar or I'm also on Twitter at econom underscore rockstar.
0: Everybody knew that Shanghai and Beijing were modern industrial cities, but to go out into the rural parts of China and see huge cities, bigger than Chicago, that, that you'd never heard of, with 20 or 30 million people, uh, all of them prospering and, and growing economically, it was, it was an amazing thing. There are corrupt areas of China where local officials will just take land away from farmers, but it's, it's not the rule. The, the general rule is that if you've been farming... Five or six acres for the last 20 years, and you have some kind of property rights to that, and if you lose that, those rights, you will be compensated. To your comment that American farmers are an important lobbying group, less than 1% of Americans are farmers. So I would argue that French farmers and Irish farmers have much more power in their own countries by far than American farmers.
1: How are you doing? Not too bad. It's Frank here. Thanks for very yeah. much for taking the call. You're welcome. I oh, was actually. Pardon? Where are you calling from? Waterford, in Ireland.
0: Okay. okay, I'm from Wexford, as I think you know.
1: Oh I'm from Wexford myself, too.
0: Oh, what part? And,
1: Wexford town, yeah. Because when, uh, when Jason told me about yourself, I had a guy in my class called Dermot Hayes, and I was thinking, was it him? And obviously not when I saw your photograph.
0: I'm a little bit older than I think you are.
1: <laughs> you sound very youthful, though, Dermot. <laughs> what part of Wexford are you from? In the town, yeah. near the barracks. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I went to school in the CBS. Oh, so did I. I graduated in 77.
1: That's when I was born.
0: (laughs) Well, you might have known uh, my nephews. They would have gone to primary school about the same time as you. Uh, No, a little bit after you. They were also called Hayes. Paul, Andrew, and Mark Hayes.
1: Paul Hayes. Um, I was just wondering, does Paul have a nickname called Bumbo?
0: (laughs) I wouldn't wouldn't know either way. I think that guy has a lot of nicknames.
1: (laughs) Uh, Paul Hayes, maybe so, maybe.
0: Do you know the O'Brien's Irish Sandwich Bar on Main Street and the one in uh Square? Yes. My brother owns those. Oh, Michael. right.
1: And do you get to visit Vexford much?
0: Oh, yeah, twice. Yeah. In fact, I just bought a little uh, place there on the quay.
1: Lovely. Yeah. Nice time to buy, isn't
0: it? Yeah, the dollar was right, and uh, it was one of those crazy auctions, that all-stops thing. Yeah. So I stayed up all night, but I got a deal. What there much bidding on it? Just one other person bid once.
1: That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's not much bidding at all going on.
0: No, uh, I think there's going to be some huge deals at the next auction because they have like 200 properties and people will be exhausted by the end of it. And their money will be gone.
1: Yeah. And as well as that, I just saw an email there. There's one property in Wexford, I think, for €20,000. Cheapers. Oh, you know, in the town.
0: Yeah. Well, and great. that's on the Allsopps thing? Or that, yes, uh,
1: Allsopps. Uh, I didn't
0: see that. I, I saw some apartments in Escorty And, a, God, I saw a beautiful place up in Killybags. It's a house looking over the ocean for seventy thousand. just couldn't believe the, the view that you would have,
1: yeah uh, good few apartments in Inniscordia the are they going up for sale for thirty five I think or
0: very low, yeah, but there's something wrong with them. If you look at the small print, they're all um i not sure you get complete legal ownership if you buy them,
1: okay, okay,
0: I think some guy sold them twice to the two different individuals and they had to fight over it
1: oh wow, wow, so um yeah, thanks very much for accepting the interview to come on the interview as well. This is something sure. that I'd like to interview economists, uh, financial mm-hmm. analysts, discuss their areas of expertise and what they do. Okay. I'd love to explore the whole area of agricultural economics that you do, Dermot. Sure. Hi, Frank Combe here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Dermot Hayes join me today. Hi, Dermot. Welcome to the show.
0: Hello, Frank. I'm glad to be on.
1: Dermot Hayes is the Pioneer Chair of Agribusiness, Professor of Economics and Professor of Finance at Iowa State University. He heads the Trade and Agricultural Policy Division at CARD, a position he also held from 1990-98. He is co-director of the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute, a research centre duly administered through the Centre for Agricultural and Rural Development at Iowa State and the University of Missouri at Columbia. He is also a leader of the Policy Task Force of the Plant Science Institute at Iowa State. A native of my own Republic of Ireland, Dermot obtained his degree in agricultural science from the University of College in Dublin and his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, with a major in international trade. Dermot has distinguished himself with many awards at the college and university levels for his work as a teacher and researcher. In 2006, he received a publication of Enduring Quality Award from the American Agricultural Economics Association, who subsequently named him a Fellow in 2007. Besides his analysis of U.S. farm policy and international agricultural trade, Dermot's other research interests include food safety, livestock modelling, demand analysis and commodity markets. Dermot, I'd love to know how you actually got into economics and then transitioned over to agricultural economics, or was it that the stereotype being Irish, you were a farmer?
0: My parents uh, had a small farm and I wanted to be uh, an agricultural advisor for County Wexford, and uh, I did an agricultural science degree. And when I was there, I realized that the job I wanted uh, wasn't going to ever become available because employment numbers were going down and the people who had the job were, were young. So, And as I studied agricultural science, I realized that some of the issues in the world were driven by good and bad economic policy. And uh, during that time, I decided Uh, I found myself reading a lot about economics in the newspapers and and The Economist magazine and decided to switch to economics to go to grad school. So my undergraduate degree is in agriculture science. Um, My graduate degree is in economics. I was fortunate at UCD in being able to take a lot of economics courses because at that time there was a a kind of a major in agricultural economics that that i took and so i blended my interest in agriculture slowly into a more of an interest in economics
1: would that at that particular time where there was an interest in agricultural economics was that due to maybe governmental level or was it mainly due to ireland's involvement or acceptance into the european economic council or the eec i
0: i'm only going to guess at that i never I don't know for sure, but I would bet it had to do with Ireland's entry into the European Union in 1973 because suddenly a lot of the – there were big changes in prices and policies and so Ireland would have had a need for people who could analyze those changes and the impact on farm income. And so UCD experimented with a a course called Agricultural Economics and that was great for me. It, It allowed me to blend my two interests. And after I left, about five or six years, uh, they stopped offering that course. And so uh, I was lucky that it it existed at the right time for me. And you made a move
1: over to California.
0: I did. I did. I I did an undergraduate degree. I graduated from UCD in 1981, and I was offered a four-year scholarship at University of California at Berkeley, and I was delighted to get that because back then there were very few jobs in Ireland, and they actually paid me to go to grad school, which was a, a fantastic honor.
1: And that would have come at a time where Ireland was in deep recession.
0: That was right. I don't know if you remember the Richie Ryan and jobs for the boys, but it was a a very depressing time. It was almost like it is in Greece right now.
1: Yeah. And with your transition over to California and looking at the state of California now, where there have huge problems related to agriculture and water and drought. I'm sure you can see how impactful such a knowledge of agricultural economics could have on this type of region.
0: Right. Um, I spent the last couple of days with a farmer from California and he told me horror stories about what the lack of water out there is doing. For instance, they're knocking down almond trees that are 20 years old uh, because the trees have died because they don't have water and uh the government is taking water away from farmers so that it's available for cities it's truly awful and there are roles for economists in situations like that so you you use markets to make sure that the people who value the water most get it and uh instead of just you kind know, of letting trees die or taking stuff away that has value maybe the farmers might have been compensated with a more efficient system but as an economist everywhere I look I see opportunities to use markets to to allocate resources more efficiently than uh, the bureaucrats
1: and this seems to contradict what America represents because the government seems to allow free markets but hence you have government involvement that creates inefficiencies in this particular setting.
0: Um, um, yeah, it's very strange in California that the farmers do have property rights. So it's like owning a farm in Ireland. You simply have a right to water and it was uh, shocking to me to learn that the current administration in California is ignoring those rights and just taking the water away or at least refusing to let the farmers use it. And uh, another idea they are pursuing is to take water out of the delta, fresh water out of, out of one of the rivers that flows into the delta, which would also destroy a lot of land because uh, the water right now is keeping the salt uh, off the land and their, their their proposal is to essentially stop the flow of fresh water that is protecting the land from the salt. And uh, again, farmers lose. And there's nothing wrong with moving water away from farmers to people who live in the cities, but just taking it away without compensating them is, uh, is, came as a bit of a shock.
1: This is something I already had previously discussed in other episodes. I spoke with uh, David Zetland, who spoke about the problems of water and agriculture, and also David Simon, who spoke about the agricultural industry in terms of meat and how a lot of costs are involved in terms of the subsidies that are being brought into farming from government. And you have your own particular take in terms of how you relate agricultural economics to the economy, more so in China. We all know China has over approximately 1.4 billion people, but I'm sure there's problems there in terms of sustaining an agricultural lifestyle for feeding all of these people.
0: Yeah, China, it's been a lifelong fascination for me. I've gone over there a lot over the last 30 years, my first trip about 30 years ago. It's an amazing place to visit, especially now. Everybody knew that Shanghai and Beijing were modern industrial cities, but to go out into the rural parts of China and see huge cities, bigger than Chicago, that, that you'd never heard of, with 20 or 30 million people, uh, all of them prospering and, and growing economically, it was, it was an amazing thing. China achieved something miraculous. It fed all those people more or less within its own uh, resources. But more recently, um, that is changing. People are moving from from farms to cities, which reduces the farm workforce and um, reduces their ability to farm mountainsides and small plots of land and collect household waste to feed the livestock. So that reduces food output. And when they move to the cities, they eat more and uh, they need an apartment, which in turn means you need to use a good land around the cities. And that plus people's gradual shift from eating rice and wheat to eating uh, beef and pork is straining the c- capacity of the country to-, to feed itself. The government has begun to import enormous quantities of soybeans, um, almost as much as the U.S. produce or China is importing right now. It's also a huge importer of milk and wine and beef and sugar and cotton and has recently become a major importer of Milo and barley, about a million tons of barley a month. So it it has changed things for us out here in Iowa because we grow a lot of soybeans, and it's going to influence everything. And I saw that Ireland just got approved to ship certain pork parts to China. It might have been Northern Ireland, but but either way, um, whenever people get access to that market, the quantities exported are huge.
1: Yeah, recently Ireland has reduced the amount of quotas that it is making in terms of milk restrictions. So we now have a movement toward increasing our livestock population. I doubt the Irish population are going to consume more milk just because there's going to be more being produced, but we're going to export that. And apparently the Chinese love this Irish grass-fed milk.
0: Well, it might have to be powdered milk or high-frequency pasteurized milk because uh, you're not going to send fresh milk over there and get it there in any condition. But yeah, there there's an opportunity in China. But also, um, Ireland, if it had entered the European Union without all the restrictions, I think Irish milk production would have skyrocketed. Instead, Ireland joined the EU and was told that it had to limit its milk production, but milk production and grass production is is Ireland's comparative advantage. So I would see uh, a reduction in milk production in in other countries in Europe and an expansion in Ireland with a lot of the milk going over there, over to Italy or, or France or Germany.
1: An Irish company, Kerry Group, you're obviously aware of Kerry Group. They're on the stock market. They seem to have grown significantly over the last number of years And some of their products, especially Kerrygold grass-fed butter, seems to be doing quite well. And in the United States, I only realized there today that there's a new growing trend in terms of consuming coffee known as bulletproof coffee, where they actually mix some butter and coconut oil to give a better textured coffee. And this seems to be increasing a demand for this type of product.
0: Yeah, I live in the middle of nowhere, the center of Iowa. And mo- most Irish people don't even know where Iowa is, and I live in the center of it. But I buy Kerrygold butter here, and I buy Dubliner cheese and uh, a couple of other forms of Irish cheddar. So it's uh, it's been a huge success story. I personally think you can taste the difference, especially with the cheese. And uh, 10, 15 years ago, whenever I'd go home to my parents, I would uh, I always thought the butter tasted better in Ireland, and uh, now I'm glad to have the chance to do that. But they're only really scratching the market opportunity over here. Fish butter is yellow and American butter is white and the yellow is just a lot more attractive and uh, there's a certain taste of uh, grass-fed Irish, cheese from grass-fed Irish cows that you're not going to get from corn-fed animals and not everybody in the U.S. is going to want that but 350 million Americans so if, if only 10% of them like that you'd still have a, an enormous market.
1: Going back to the story on China, recently you covered a testimony on the impacts of food demand from China's rising incomes and urbanisation, and there's worrying trends in terms of how to remain self-sufficient. Are there ways in which China can adopt new methods of agriculture in order to become more self-sufficient, or will you think they have to rely more on imports
0: and exports uh, so they'll never be self-sufficient in everything. The fact that they're importing 70 million tons of soybeans right now tells you that that's in the past. But what they can do is use their existing resources more efficiently. And in dollar terms, they could be self-sufficient in food. And to do that, they would grow things that are labor-intensive, like honey and apple trees and uh, fruit trees, garlic, lettuce, ginseng, uh, high-value uh, labor-intensive items, and export those. And then they would need to import land-intensive items, like feed grains.
1: So they should work under comparative advantage?
0: That's the one, yeah. That's what we teach and that's what we believe in. And uh, everybody benefits when we do that. It's it's just a matter of moving product from where it's in surplus to where it's in scarcity. And of course, the value of the product rises, and that increase in value is available to for everybody to benefit.
1: Dharma, just in case there might be a listener who may not have come across the term comparative advantage, would you mind explaining briefly what it means?
0: Uh, it, it comes from actually uh, Adam Smith. And, and the idea is that Instead of everybody trying to do everything, like become a plumber and a carpenter and a driver and a hair cutter, uh, we all specialize in what we do good. And that's true for people, and it's true for countries. And and some countries have unique skills. Uh, For instance, where I'm from has an enormous amount of land, so we would specialize in land-intensive products. And China has a lot of labor, so their comparative advantage is in labor-intensive products. But the same benefits flow. you. Uh, people specialize in what they're good at. Countries do the same. There's more of everything because when somebody who is a good carpenter only does carpentry, you get a lot of work out of that person as opposed to somebody like me trying to learn it and do a not-so-good job. So when countries try to live under their own production, it's, it's called autarky. And it's just like what I saw in Eastern Europe when the wall came down, where, where every individual was trying to be their own plumber and their own carpenter. And it, it's not an efficient outcome. And uh, when we trade with each other, we get to do what we do best, and uh, the result is well. It's not hard to see this. I mean, if I was in Singapore recently. That country has no natural resources. It, it even has to import water. But they, they follow these comparative advantage free trading rules, and their income is 30%, 40% greater than in the U.S. And then countries that have tried to live within their means, uh, China when it had the famines, and R- Russia until uh, the wall came down. Cuba and North Korea, more recently Argentina and to a lesser extent Venezuela. It's just not a good way. It it destroys wealth.
1: So uh, trading would increase wealth and would benefit countries and the residents of those countries overall.
0: Yeah, and you see that in Ireland. Uh, I grew up in a relatively poor country and was delighted to see Ireland boom after I'd left. But it it boomed based on Ireland specialising in what what it was good at, plus, uh, of course, some low corporate taxes.
1: Ireland was good at agriculture back in the 50s and 60s, and it actually transitioned away from agriculture in order to attract multinational corporations. And we're still good at agriculture, but we may not have the same percentage of labour in there because it's not as labour intensive.
0: Exactly. We're, in, we're not good at all aspects of agriculture. My prediction is that Ireland's comparative advantage in agriculture is probably in dairy and that you're going to see uh, over the next 15 years a, a huge run up in Irish dairy production. And uh, there are places in the world where there are dairy cows now where they shouldn't be. and For instance, Holland and Denmark have way too many animals for their environment and they'll probably have to cut back. So Ireland's benefit will be their loss.
1: Okay. We mentioned earlier about farmers in California owning their land.
0: And you have yeah, on- the water rates. Yeah, the w- water rights.
1: Yeah. In China, it's the opposite, Nerdy, where the Chinese government actually own much of the country's farmland.
0: Uh, th- that's true in theory. Uh, nobody owns the land. It's it's against the law to do it. But people have established kind of a informal property rights and the government doesn't always feel like it can take that away from them. It, it typically compensates them in some way when it needs to use farmland for housing or for roads. So it's not uh, a very clear-cut situation. It's not that... The government owns the land, or the farmer owns the land. It's some strange mixture, and it depends on the part of China you're into. There there are corrupt areas of China where local officials will just take land away from farmers, but it's, it's not the rule. The, the general rule is that if you've been farming five or six acres for the last 20 years, you have some kind of property rights to that, and if you lose that, those rights, you will be compensated.
1: Would you believe there may be a worrying trend, particularly the United States, anyway, in terms of growing, say, seed varieties or what are possibly known as suicide seeds?
0: Oh, determinators! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that what yeah. they're known
1: as, determinators?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: What's your view on this?
0: Um, that was a, a an idea that was floated about ten or fifteen years ago. And the the logic is as follows. If you wanted somebody, a private company, to develop a new wheat seed that would, let's say, suit Ireland or Africa or somewhere, you'd have to give that company an incentive. The, The company would think about it as follows. Well, I can spend all the money on the wheat seed, develop the new variety, but then the farmer grows that seed and next year he'll just replant that seed and sell it to his neighbors. And so that was taking away the incentive for private companies to uh, develop new varieties. And, uh, the Terminator gene was viewed as a solution. The, the seed would only last once, and so you wouldn't get that leakage I described earlier. But it was an idea that never really panned out. People just didn't like the idea of farmers growing a seed and not being able to regrow it the following year. And so the idea is passed. I don't think anybody's pursuing it seriously now. There might be some stories that are still being written about it, but at the scientific level, it's not an active issue. And that does leave us with uh, what are called orphan crops, uh, crops that nobody cares to do research on because there's no way to capture the benefits of their research.
1: And companies like Monsanto who have uh, produced the coating on seeds in order to increase the yield, there seems to be some interest groups that are opposed to this type of agriculture.
0: Monsanto is famous for having developed genetically modified varieties. I'm not aware of coatings. I am aware that coatings are put on seed and all have been put on seed, but I don't think they come from Monsanto. But you do bring up something, maybe I brought it up, this genetic and modified thing that the world is getting scarcer and scarcer on land and uh, to somebody like me who grew up in Ireland and always like to see productive agriculture, it's frustrating to see the European Union added added to uh, genetically modified crops. The yields are higher from those crops and high yield uh, ultimately means cheaper food for poor people and less land needing to be brought into cultivation in places like Brazil. So I hope Europe uh, finally gets around this negativism towards uh, agriculture technology because going home now is like going back to a museum.
1: And with the growing levels of population globally, would you think we may have... A Malthusian catastrophe?
0: No, no, no. Um, uh, we, we learned that. But three or four years ago, we had these very high prices. And uh, lo and behold, production of wheat and corn and barley expanded all over the world, and now prices have come down. Whenever prices rise, farmers and technology companies have an incentive to work harder to take advantage of high prices. And, of course, they do that by producing more, and that brings prices back down again. And Malthus was wrong. Uh, he was... <laughs> it was negative a negative thinker i think and uh, i think that's been shown but having said that with more people and less efficient use of land we are going to have to bring more land into cultivation and if you go to the parts of the world like paraguay or Mato Grosso in brazil where that's happening it's um, it's devastating to the environment um, you see these fires down there and trees and uh, shrubs that could have been used for wildlife or are being torn down. So to the extent that we can increase yields on productive land and leave that other land alone uh, to absorb carbon and house wildlife, uh, we're all better off.
1: Yeah, I discussed that. And if listeners would like to listen to some of the thinking behind this, I would recommend they listen to episode 34 with David Simon on the Economic Rockstar podcast. Dermot. <laughs> Yeah, sorry.
0: Yeah. How do you spell his last name? Is it S-I-M-O-N?
1: Yes, that's it.
0: Okay. There's a, a guy I, I could recommend on that issue. His name is Zilberman, Z-I-L-B-E-R-M-A-N, and he's at University of California, Berkeley, and he does a fantastic job explaining these issues.
1: Great. I must reach out to him and see, would he come on and yeah. join me? Yeah. Dermot, on a previous episode with Jason Shokran, he described you as one of the best agricultural economists how Nathan. flattering is that for you from someone who is a Nobel Prize winner?
0: <laughs> well, it is flattering.
1: It is. And would you know Jason well?
0: Yeah, I, I know him. Uh, he was uh, an assistant professor here. We worked together in a lot of papers. He's a very, very creative individual. And uh, some of my most memorable research was done uh, with him.
1: Shorty, sure, he is a Renaissance man.
0: Yeah, yeah. He has his own music band. So he plays music at nights in uh, bars out in Wyoming.
1: Could I ask you also about the use of beta agonists like ractopamine?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, there are hormones that are banned all over the world, and those hormones have been abused. In particular, Italian veal producers abused hormones, and Chinese pig farmers abused them. And then beta agonists are not quite hormones, but they have similar effects in that the person or animal that consumes them tends to put on muscle and less fat. So think of them as like a steroid, or, or, but not quite a hormone. The way the American society works, they were tested to see if they were safe for humans. And they are, if used properly. And so they're in use over here. They're not in use in Europe, and they're not in use in China. And so American farmers, even though they have access to what is viewed as a safe technology, are moving away from it so as to continue to export to Asia.
1: Okay, which is good news, possibly overall.
0: Uh, yeah, except that the feed used in the animals will be, um, we'll have to feed the animals more to get the same amount of meat. Yeah. So there's an inefficiency there.
1: Okay, so there's a very scientific element to this.
0: Yeah, and the European attitude is all as well. It's the precautionary principle. You have to prove that a technology is safe, and you can't do that. You can only test whether it's unsafe or not. You can never prove a negative, and so that's some of my frustration with Europe. Out here, we, the farmers get to choose whether to use the technology or not, and if the customer doesn't want it, then the farmer gets a premium for not using it. But in Europe, it's all banned for everybody, and that's not the way an economist would do things.
1: U.S. farmers, they're a very powerful lobby group. How would you feel that they may have some influence in terms of the studies being peer-reviewed to accept the likes of these beta agonists in their meats?
0: Oh, well, the beta agonists were developed by private companies and were approved before farmers ever saw them. So there's no way that farmers influence could have dictated that process. But scientists who work for the government over here, they're a pretty honest group of people. I don't think they're easily influenced at all. I wouldn't be concerned about that. And to your comment that American farmers are an important lobbying group, less than 1% of Americans are farmers. So I would argue that French farmers and Irish farmers have much more power in their own countries by far than American farmers. And evidence of that is the amount of subsidies or at least direct payments in Europe provided to farmers relative to the U.S. When you're only 1% of the population, you're not going to be that important.
1: Mm-hmm. Could I ask you, Dharmas, who were your main influencers in economics?
0: Oh, when I was Actually, the reason I kind of switched from, well, from agricultural science to economics, uh, there was a book by Milton Friedman called Free to Choose, and uh, it was a life-changing book. I read it in my second year at UCD and saw how powerful the ideas were and how life could be improved. For people by just letting them freely choose what was best for them if your readers haven't read it i recommend it to you but it, it changed my whole way of thinking
1: would you have any personal habits that you'd like to share with our listeners
0: habits mm. um it was a flat place so we're all into biking we have these bikes almost as good as the ones on the tour de france and uh that's what we do we ride 50 60 100 miles at a time on flat land in pretty good weather and it's, it's a joy to, to do
1: you're the second passionate cyclist I've had on the show.
0: Really? Yeah, yeah once, you, once you do it, it's uh, you need, I'd, I'd ride for five, six hours, burn two or 3,000 calories and enjoy every minute of it.
1: Josh Angris from MIT, he's uh, also passionate. I think he's more mountain biking though.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we don't know the mountains here.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the trend in Ireland, I'm not sure if you're up to speed on it, but it's gone very, very popular as well.
0: Now, what happened over here, we had all these railroads, the railroad spurs, you know, every little town had its own railroad and they all kind of went by the wayside. So we had all these nice flattened, uh, railroad, uh, beds and they just tarred them over and it's called rails to trails. And so when, when we ride, it's, it's a bunch of us only on bikes. That's the only people allowed and we can go for 60, 100, 200 miles without ever seeing uh, a car. Uh, except when you cross roads, of course. And then I go home and I see them riding on the like on the M11 down to Wexford. And it just seems so dangerous and so uh, <laughs> uncomfortable compared to just riding along without it. And if Ireland does cut back on railroads, uh, that would be a great use for that piece of land.
1: There's a lot of that land all right now. And I think they're starting to make a trail like that here in Waterford.
0: Oh, good, good, yeah. good. Yeah, because my understanding is that CIE or whatever it's called now, Started to cut back on rail service, and uh, that's a bad thing if if you're used to using it. But it would be a good thing for bikes.
1: Dermot, would you have any current research or project or book that you might be working on at the moment that you'd like to share with us?
0: Keepers, um, I'm working. There's a. A couple of free trade deals that I'm working on, now. I get to consult as part of my job and uh, I get to see the text of the proposed deals, in this case, between the U.S. and Asia, but also forthcoming between the U.S. and Europe. So that kind of excites me to see the opportunity for comparative advantage to work on a continental level, m- much as it's worked for Ireland on a country level.
1: Would you like to share any aspects of that?
0: Um the European deal is, to be quite fair is not moving along as quickly as like but the deal uh, called Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP it looks like it'll close here within a month or two and then we'll start implementing that and uh US and Japanese and Vietnamese consumers and producers will all have access to each other's products and markets. And, um, it's, it's quite an earth shattering deal. I've worked on other ones. I worked on a deal between the U S and South Korea and between the U S and Colombia, and uh, a long time ago between the U S Mexico and Canada. And, um, as somebody who believes in free trade and opportunity, it's great to work on something and then five, six, seven years later see the, the predicted impacts come about and consumers having access to less expensive imports and producers who have an advantage benefiting from more exports.
1: And it's amazing that seed, pardon upon, was grown from your reading of Milton Freeman's book.
0: Well, uh, I'm very low on the totem pole. Uh, I don't have any influence over whether or not these deals are signed, but I do get to work on the detail, small details uh, related to how certain agricultural rules are changed to, to meet the, the philosophical goals of the of the higher ups.
1: These deals that tend to be made between, say, the United States and Mexico, Canada, Japan, South Korea, etc., over time, are these free trade agreements just for agriculture? And are there still tariffs imposed on other products?
0: No, it's everything. Again, being a lot older than you, I remember when Ireland joined the European Union and people were horrified to see uh, Dutch potatoes and uh, Dutch carrots coming into Ireland because they assumed that we would grow everything we could ourselves. But anybody who looks at the history of Ireland since 1973 must realize that the country has benefited from trading with other European countries. And uh, all we're working on is the same principle applied to continents.
1: Um, you've also worked on ethanol production.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, been something I'd almost rather forget. But uh, early on, uh, when the U.S. government changed its policies to stimulate ethanol production, I became fascinated with it because I realized that corn, which used to be used as an animal feed, would now find its most productive use as a substitute for um, crude oil. And so I developed a formula that linked the price of corn to the price of crude oil and did so before corn prices started to track the formula I had developed. And uh, the success of that formula in predicting what would happen to corn price then pulled me into a whole lot of areas related to ethanol and uh, energy use and now more recently, uh, cellulosic ethanol production.
1: You mentioned there is something you'd like to forget about. It. Is
0: well, it I'm an easy-going guy. I live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so I, I, what I discovered with the ethanol one was people, oil companies, lobby groups in Washington were, were really interested in the outcomes of research. And um, if they didn't like your research, they could get nasty about it. And so I produced some work that was negative towards ethanol. Uh, in particular, I talked about ethanol, high corn prices, pulling land into production in Brazil, which was bad for the the climate, uh, and got kind of Dinged for that, and then I also pointed out that ethanol caused gas prices to be lower than would be the case, gas being petrol over here. And, uh, again, just uh, the controversy that the money that people were prepared to spend to denigrate work in that area just blew me away. And it, the funny thing was, both papers were produced within a month of each other, one of which was favorable towards ethanol, the other which was unfavorable. And instead of each side realizing that I was being fair, I got attacked from both sides, so oh. I'd rather forget that moment
1: it's very fickle what academia is, is in terms of publications well,
0: yeah sometimes in academia you do stuff that actually has relevance and uh <laughs> you almost wish you didn't, because then the people who don't like your work will find some reason to, to run it down.
1: It's not as if you have any self-interest. You do studies with other co-authors, whether they're undergraduates, graduates, or people within your field in other universities. Yes. So,
0: people people from all over the world. Now, having developed that formula that said that corn prices were going to track uh, oil prices, I did go out and buy some land because it was a, a no-brainer. So, it, right now, I do have a conflict of interest in that I've started the farm.
1: Yeah, and sure, that only happened after you found this one. Yeah, correct,
0: correct. It, yeah, it was seeing an opportunity. Uh, corn was $2 a bushel, and by my calculations, it needed to go to 4 or more. And so you can imagine what that would do to the price of land. And I saw it happening and told people I was going to do it and borrowed money and bought land.
1: So the yield or the return on this land is higher than the, the borrowing, given the rates are quite low historically.
0: Yeah, it was almost arbitrage. You could borrow 3 or 4% and buy something to Ended up appreciating uh, by twenty five or thirty percent a year.
1: There's an entrepreneurial instinct in some economics work as well.
0: I either that or I'm from a small farm and never got over it.
1: <laughs> so, um, looking back at your time in Ireland, if you, how would you view your life would have been if you never received a scholarship to Berkeley? I, <laughs>
0: you know, when the uh, Celtic Tiger was at full bloom, I often thought, well, I could have been an accountant or work for the, one of the banks. And uh, I often thought life could have been good in Ireland if I hadn't emigrated. But with the crisis as it happened, uh, the last position I would have ever wanted was to work for one of the banks or even one of the accountant companies. So I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing. There are more opportunities over here, and I don't quite fully understand it, but in any given field, it seems like you can get further ahead faster over here than, than at home.
1: Yeah, and jobs are quite scarce in Ireland as well. Uh, I know there are jobs announcements being made each week, but there's still high unemployment amongst young people.
0: Yeah, uh, although it's come down, right? It's less than 10% now. You know, there are... There's a lot of Irish people who live abroad, and we're all incredibly proud of uh, the economic performance of Ireland uh, up to 2008. I remember seeing unemployment statistics for Ireland that were lower than places like Germany and the the U.S. So I'm pretty optimistic about Ireland and its ability to rebound, and I bet in five years unemployment will be back down to where it is in the U.S. right now.
1: Yeah. If you were an economics advisor for a country, what would you recommend in terms of the agricultural sector, whether it's to do with trade or whether it's to do with the technology or production of agriculture?
0: Uh, First of all, with trade, just let people do what's best for them. Don't subsidize them. Don't tax them. Just let them find out. What they're best at and what they're most competitive at, and because in the long run you don't want to be encouraging people to get into a business uh, that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, for instance, in China recently, there were government was encouraging people to get into pig farming, even though pig farming in China doesn't have much of a long-term future. So you pity the young people that got pulled in because of subsidies. Uh, that would be number one. And in terms of uh, research, um, there's a huge role for government to do basic research, especially that which might have relevance to the industries within the country. And Ireland has been good at, at sponsoring research, but but it's an expensive proposition and, and more money uh, would probably pay off handsomely.
1: You mentioned Milton Friedman's book. Is there any other book that you'd like to recommend?
0: No, I, I read a lot of trashy novels.
1: <laughs> and before we go, Dharmas, would you have any takeaway that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: I've had the benefits of international travel and i've had good trips and bad trips but there's no trip that i ever took that wasn't worth it because of the the knowledge i gained and the perspective i earned so i'd encourage your listeners if they haven't traveled to strange places like burma or um, uruguay to find a way to do so and uh, you'll come back a changed person
1: and what was your favorite foods or most exotic foods that you tasted in those countries
0: I've had some pig skin that was delicious. Pig skin? <laughs> I've had some. I've had some awful stuff too. But yeah, when you're in the tropics, uh, the the juices, the breakfast juices are amazing because they're fresh squeezed. Wine, man, to go to places like Chile or California and visit a, a vineyard uh, and drink good wine in the area where it's grown is, is something else. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, there's no underworld in the world where the butter and cheese taste better than in Ireland. Oh yeah, I can
1: account for that too, Dermot. Dermot! Thank you so much for being inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you.
0: Uh, well, I'm, my name is Dermot Hayes. I'm at Iowa State University. And uh, if you just say Google that, you'll find me because my email and phone number are on my uh, website.
1: You can find all the links to Dermot on EconomicRockstar.com forward slash Dermot Hayes. Dharma, you are an economic rock star.
0: Thank you, I'm honored.
1: Thank you for being so generous with your time.
0: That's right.